Welcome, everyone, to The Mentor's Voice. I am Chris Mormon here with Christy Kramer. Yeah, hey, Chris. It's great to be back. Good to be back here for season three. Season three. It's April of 2023, and we are launching the third season of the mentor's voice can you believe that we are in season three it's it's really impressive and when we look back at some of the episodes it's amazing how much time has flown by and all the things that have happened since we launched the first season we have learned a bunch from seasons one and two and so that's why we took a little pause and we are back with season three and we are kicking things off with a special mentor and a special interviewer. Christy, who are they? Well, we went back to one of our tried and true mentors uh, for this episode, and we are very excited to have our very own Katie Smith Sloan from Leading Age on this episode. She actually has the most listens for any of our other episodes we've had She is the president and CEO of Leading Age, for those of you who don't know her, and uh, that means that she leads an association of about 5,000 providers who provide services for older adults. So she is the leader of our association, and she has a lot of wisdom to share with us. So much. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And of course, we couldn't launch season three without one of our uh, most popular interviewers, right, Chris? We have Molly Wiley. I'm back to interview uh, Katie. Shout out Uh, Molly Wiley. Awesome. Yeah. So Molly is still in the process of getting her doctorate at the UMass Boston School. And we're excited that she was able to do this interview with Katie. Uh, They uh, really go more in depth this time, actually, into what Katie's career has been like and some of the things that she chose to do for education, as well as career pivots. So it was a really great episode because that first time when uh, Katie was interviewed, it was November 2020, Chris. It's so wild. We were in the thick of it with pandemic and you and I were just getting to know each other, just getting started. I didn't really have a full grasp of just how amazing um, Katie Smith Sloan. And since then, you know, I've been able to meet with her in person and we've had incredible conversations with her. We've had conversations in person with Molly and it's just been awesome to get to know both of them. And so really special to invite them back onto the mentor's voice and and hear from them both. Yeah, so this episode, we learned a lot of new things about Katie herself. And then also she talks a little bit with Molly about where she sees the future of aging services now that we have a lot of the pandemic stuff behind us and how that's changed everything going forward. So it's a great episode uh, for Molly and Katie, and we're excited to have them be the first episode that we are launching for the season. All right, let's jump into season three and hear from Katie and Molly. Hi, Hi. so good to see you. I'm sorry that I missed you at the uh, annual meeting. I know Christy, at at the student reception, Christy was like, did you see Katie? She was looking for you. And of course, as soon as I walk in, I can't find you. So oh, yeah, but there was a good crowd there. And so that, which is a great thing. I know it was really fun. It was great. Um, but thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I know sure. this is not your first interview with the mentor's voice. You were actually the inaugural mentor's voice interview. Season one, one episode ago. one. Yeah, it feels like it. So, but, I, and I know you were interviewed by Jordan, so I'm, really happy to be able to talk to you myself. I went back and listened to that interview, which was great. 
Um, so I won't ask the same questions, but I'll build on some of some of what you talked about with her. Um, so the first question, just to get going, has to do with your time at, in undergraduate, uh, mm-hmm. as an undergraduate. And I went to Colby College, so I'm a little biased as well for small liberal arts colleges. Uh-huh. Um, so you spent your time at Middlebury College, and I'm wondering how you think a school like that, small liberal arts, uh, prepared you for your career in U.S. Senate, AARP, and now at Leading Age. Well, it's great to be with you, Molly, and it's that's a great question. Um, you know, I think one of the great benefits of small liberal arts schools and a school like Middlebury, certainly for me, is that you have the opportunity to develop um, pretty meaningful relationships with professors. Um, and so it's so, you know, you're, you just become very much a part of the community. I was a poli sci and history major, so a combination major. So I had feet in two camps, uh, which gave me access to lots more professors. Um, but I think at the, in many ways, it's, it's, it's about those relationships. But I think the other thing that it's about, maybe this is more me than a liberal arts school, but there's just an enormous amount of opportunity for service. Um, so I, you know, I did a lot of volunteering in the broader Middlebury, Addison County community um, because I could. It was accessible. The school made it very easy to do. I didn't have to be part of a fraternity or sorority to do anything like that. That was just um, sort of uh, what the school offered. And um, and then, you know, just the ability to make, I mean, my the friendships and the colleagueships that I've developed in school or, you know, have lasted forever. So I think it just taught me a lot about people and relationships and um, the opportunity to learn in lots of different ways, um, either through one-on-one with professors or small you know, study groups or seminars, um, and, uh, and certainly the importance of service. That's great. And it sounds like it started you off on a path to service for the rest of your career. And I, I couldn't agree more about, you know, with small schools, it's sort of like you get to be a big fish in a smaller pond. And if you want to start a club, you can start a club. Or if you want to join a group, it's really easy to. And there may only be 10 or 15 people and you really get to feel like you're making a difference, which is sort of, uh, you know, a benefit of also services, how good you feel doing it. Exactly, exactly. So you have had a very impressive career and obviously you're now the president and CEO of Leading Age, but you, you know, you didn't start at Leading Age. And I'd love to know your tra- about your transition from your work in the federal government early in your career to a nonprofit like AARP. How did you make that transition? Yeah, so I started out in the Senate, the U.S. Senate, working for a senator. And, um, and when you're a junior staffer on a personal staff of a senator or a representative, you're a generalist. You do a little bit of everything. So I could be doing flood insurance one day and natural gas deregulation the next day and then something on wild horses. And I mean, it, it was quite quite a range of things. My senator happened to be ch- chair of the subcommittee on aging that was part of appropriations. And so I, that's how I got kind of got hooked into thinking about aging. But And I think that that's what sort of caused me to want to leave the Senate and go to work for an organization where I could focus, where I felt like I could go a mile deep on something I cared deeply about and actually try 
hopefully make a difference. Um, whereas I'm sure you can make a difference and you do make a difference working in the Senate, but it's, you're, you're very much, uh, you're, you're, you know, a little bit about a lot of things. And I was sort of eager to see what I could learn more deeply about aging. So, um, so it was a natural for me to, 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 uh, go to a nonprofit. It never occurred to me to do anything but go to a nonprofit, frankly. I think that's just sort of the way I'm, I'm built. And, um, and so, you know, I've had great opportunities and experiences and organizations as enormous as AERP um, with vast resources and complicated, you know, ways of doing business. And then smaller organizations like Leading Age, which are just a little bit more nimble and to, and more focused. So it sounds like you got even more laser focused as time went on. Uh, and as important as floods and wild horses are, I'm glad you chose aging. I'm glad you're <laughs> in this industry. Um, and I honestly, I feel so grateful for even knowing about leading age, which probably comes from me being a UMass PhD student, because like speaking of laser focus, the minute I heard about the LTSS Center and the research that they're doing, I sat down with Mark Cohen, I like scheduled a meeting with him immediately. And I said, I need to work with them. And from that day forward, which was my first year in 2018, I've been working with the LTSS Center. So I've been so grateful for the, the projects, the opportunities, the mentorship. Um, and I know you personally sent me a card and a photo, I think of one of the consumers of one of your member organizations. So it is, you know, it is a personal place, it's a place where you can make relationships. So very grateful for a place like Leading Age as well. Um, and as a student, I would love to know about your decision to get a master's in public policy analysis. Um, what did you want from a degree like that that you felt you didn't already have because you had such great applied experience? Sure. And sure. I'm in a place where, I, you know, I'm in academia, but I'm dying for some applied hands-on experience. So I'd love to know your decision to get that master's in public policy and what you aim to get from it? So there are two, really two things. One of them is I love public policy. And so, and I actually, to your point, I sort of applied it, but I didn't understand the discipline behind it. And I felt as if that was an important uh, tool to add to my toolbox, is to really understand that in a much more granular way. Um, and then I, I felt as if, you know, my career would, would uh, be better off with another credential. Um, and, you know, thought about law school. I thought about a lot of things. And when I realized what I was really most, you know, interested in was affecting policy change and understanding the policy making process. Um, and, you know, the other thing about the, the degree is it focused not just on federal policy, but state policy as well, which I found incredibly interesting because it was just a it was a sandbox I hadn't played in at all. So just sort of understanding how things work at a state level and, uh, you know, how, how they think differently about policy and uh, than we do at the federal level, I think was, it just broadened my horizons a lot. And then it's been helpful for me at Leading Age, where we have 38 state partners, all of whom are working on policy in the state. And it's, it, you know, now we can see where state policy and federal policy work together or work against each other uh, and uh, where states can be laboratories for change that then we can bring to the federal level as well. So all of that, I think, stemmed from um, getting that master's degree. Yeah. And I think even just thinking about a talk I had heard at the annual meeting about how states are getting really creative with 
long-term care financing mm-hmm. and how if changes weren't made at the federal level, these states are coming up with ways, you know, like public insurance ideas and ways to kind of innovate it, you know, on their own level. So yeah, really interesting. And I know in your interview with Jordan a while back, you know, she asked, why did you stay in aging? So you start, you know, you started in the U.S. Senate, you chose aging, and then why did you stay there? And you had said because you felt there was so much to do and you wanted to be a part of that work. So among the many issues that we're facing in the aging and healthcare industries, I know workforce is a big one. Funding, as I mentioned, is a big one. Um, what is at the top of your personal priority list right now? You know, I would say um, that you know, our system of providing long-term care in this country is so broken. It's underfunded, it's not sustainable, it's not integrated. And, you know, that's not one issue, that's a whole lot of issues, but it is fundamental to setting up the kind of uh, infrastructure that we need as a country to deal with a growing older population. I mean, we've, we've talked about demographic changes for the last 20 years, and now we're living them, right? And we're not ready. And so I think the urgency um, is there now, and hopefully the urgency will lead to political will to actually make some of the kinds of real investments in uh, services for older adults that we absolutely need in this country. Um, we'll see for sure. But I, you know, the, I think a couple of things. One is that I think the numbers are different. So therefore the political pressures are different than they have been in the past. Um, it's, it was a nice to do before now it's a need to do. Um, but I also think that the attention that sadly that COVID placed on, um, our system or lack of systems of long-term care and some of the flaws that were so evident in the middle of a pandemic, um, I, hopefully they've lit a, a fire under some of our policymakers and made them think hard about how, um, how they need to elevate and prioritize this agenda. You know, we made the argument during the big, great debate about the infrastructure bill that investing in services and supports for older adults is part of our country's infrastructure. It's like bridges and roads. It's, you know, that we shouldn't be thinking about these big capital projects. So we need to be thinking about people and what we need to make sure that we support people. And I think that's a continuing argument we will we will make. I'm also really grateful for some of the reports that Leading Age has been putting out and one that's sticking in my mind, especially after COVID, you know, with public perceptions of nursing homes, mm-hmm. especially was like the language that members are using and kind of recommendations for how do we promote aging services, especially nonprofits, so that we're not saying facility, but right. we're saying community. And so I think that's also a big thing is like just the words we use Absolutely. to change rhetoric. Right, right. We can be our own worst enemies if we yeah. use the wrong language. And uh, so yeah. hopefully we're we're on the road to change. Yes. And um, my next question, I hope my professors are not listening too closely because I will say, I think some of my, some of the most learning I've done is on the job as a case manager. I worked at, um, an area agency on aging. And I, in one year, I think I learned more than I probably could somewhere else in five, but I have learned a lot in my PhD program, but I just think there was, the learning was so consolidated as a case manager and in applied work. Um, And so I'm wondering as a president and CEO, 
I want to know how much of your job is kind of people facing, so member facing, and how much is also consumer facing? Are you working with older adults? Are you inspired directly by older adults, even in such a high level leadership position? Yeah, it's a great question. I would say most of my job is member facing, um, you know, working directly with our member organizations, working with other stakeholders in Washington, um, people that we have to work with on coalitions and whatnot. Um, but some of the I, I think some of the most gratifying time that I spend is when I go visit a member organization and get a chance to hang out with their senior leadership team, hang out with the residents or clients and talk to them about what's going on, what gets them out of bed in the morning. Um, and, you know, that it doesn't happen often enough, but I certainly make on, I do a lot of travel and I certainly make the, make an effort to get into our member organizations because it makes our work real. When, um, and the other thing I would say is, you know, we have an increasing number of villages that are part of the leading age membership community. Well, there are a couple of them in Boston, community-based sort of neighborhood groups of older adults that have come together and said, we want to form an organization that'll help us all age in place. And it's very much on a sort of a mutual support uh, system. So I joined the, the, I joined the, the village in my neighborhood uh, here in DC and you know, it gives me an, an, I haven't, because I'm working full time, I don't, I don't get to participate in anything that they do, but I love getting their newsletter every Sunday afternoon yeah. with this yeah. incredible smorgasbord of, of activities planned by older adults, my neighbors, people who live in our neighborhood um, to do with other older adults. And it's, to me, it's so, um, it's heartwarming uh, that the amount of energy and uh, that people are putting into making sure that they're creating the kind of and sustaining the kind of community they want to live in for the rest of their lives. Um, and, you know, that's replicated in spades in our member organizations. Um, but these folks aren't living in a congregate setting. They're living in their, in their homes and apartments that they've lived in for years. So, And I think the way I think about applied work or direct interaction with members or consumers, older adults, it's not just inspiring, but it's also really educational. So I say I wouldn't know what to study in my PhD program if I wasn't a case manager in home and community-based services first. Mm -hmm. I just wouldn't know. Like, yes, sure, I like spending time with older adults. I know about some of the issues facing them, but you, I wouldn't know specifically what questions I wanted answered unless I had mm -hmm. that yeah. experience. Mm -hmm. And yeah. consequently, my research, I've since day one, I've been so interested in non-medical home care and Huh. you know, work, workforce around that and how people are finding home care, where they're getting recommendations. Is their doctor helping them, their social worker, the adult child? So it really has been informed by yeah. that kind of work. You know, it's interesting when I was working, I guess it was actually after I worked on the Hill, but we were doing a lot of work with Senator Ted Kennedy's office because he was a real champion of what was then the Class Act, which was financing reform, which was repealed. But, um, but I... I remember one meeting with him and a whole lot of other people. And um, he said, what would older people and people living with disabilities think of this? It's really important to touch back often, touch back to the base often. And I thought I've never forgotten that because here's this, you know, he's bigger than life <laughs> guy. And he's really talking about, let's go back and talk to people. Let's find out what, you know, Real people think of this. Loved it. 
Loved it. Yeah. And as you get higher and higher in leadership roles, I think that becomes more and more important because as a case manager, you're, t- you're doing home visits every day. You're making phone calls. You're talking to family members. But as a you know, CEO or, or political figure, you, know, you, you sometimes have to, like you said, sort of pencil it into your schedule. Yeah. Now, this is, the next question, my last question is unapologetically related to research since I am in a PhD <laughs> program. But I'm curious if you could ask any research question or conduct any study, no restrictions, what would it be? So in other words, what's something you wish you knew more about in this field? Wow. There's so many things. Um, you know, I think um, something I've been more curious about now than ever before, and that's COVID as a result of COVID, is what is the opportunity for technology to be an enabler for some of the things that we've been doing, we're in a we're in a people business, right? We're most of what we do is very much hands on, and we're we have a workforce crisis, so we can't replace people entirely. But it, where can it be an enabler? Where can it be a, a um, can help us do what we do differently or better, so that we're freeing up more time to spend directly with people? And I feel like. There's tons of stuff going on. There's, you know, startups producing this thing and that thing and this app and that that app. What actually works and what actually makes a difference in under what circumstances, whether it's, you know, home delivered care, whether it's counseling, um, care management, I don't know what it is, but I think, um, I feel like we're throwing a lot of spaghetti at the wall right now to try to figure out what sticks and we haven't stepped back to say, what is it we're trying to achieve? And then deciding, figuring out through research, whether or not we're actually getting the results that we need or want. I think that's, um, you know, that's a, a, of great interest to me. I also think that um, we've got a lot more older people. So what are new models of delivering ser- a integrated services at the community level to people living in their homes and apartments um, that we should be exploring, testing, um, you know, in terms of an integrated system where somebody doesn't have to go one place for Meals on Wheels and someplace else for home care and someplace else for, you know, that we're actually making it easier for people. We should make it as easy as applying for college to figure out how to navigate your aging services. Yeah, a one-stop One application, you know, one place where you can find the names of all these colleges. Everybody has a website. I don't know, just something, you know, we just made it so complex. I think you made a really good point about technology complementing in-person interactions because I know some people get afraid, oh, if we bring in robots, we get rid of the human interaction, but it also can free up time so that care, you know, caregivers can either do more of the work they want to do or can just, you know, have provide emotional support that they, you know, that they actually might want to provide instead of all of the ADL help. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. So it's an enhancement. It's not, a, it's a lever. It's not a replacement. Great. Well, those are all the questions I had for you, Katie. Thank you so much. I don't know if you have any parting words for the audience, but you've been so great to talk to. And it's an honor to talk to the president and CEO of such a great organization. Oh, well, thank you, Molly. And thanks for, thanks for your commitment to this field. And uh, thanks for 
being part of Leading Age for sure. Um, and I really look, just look forward to following your career and your research. So I hope we will stay in touch. Absolutely. I'm writing a dissertation, so you'll see more of me and I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> so thanks for, thanks for including me in the organization and the work. Absolutely. And good luck to you. Thank you. Take care. We are so thankful, as always, for all of the great work that Katie does and excited for Molly as well as she continues her work in the world of aging services. So speaking of that world, Christy, what else is happening with Leading Age right now? Well, right now, Chris, we are in the middle of our leadership summit in Washington, D.C., and that is the time when we have... uh, leaders from all of our members coming into Washington, D.C. to talk together about different leadership topics. But then also we have our big day where everyone goes to the Hill to meet with congressional members of Congress. Uh, It's a really inspirational opportunity to participate in the advocacy world. So that's what we're doing right now. And we have a small student program going on and getting some students really acclimated with advocacy as well as some networking going on. But that makes us really excited and eager for our next program, which will be, again, at our annual meeting. So I want everyone to save the date. I'll pause there for everyone. Get your pencils out, your calendar out. I'm dating myself. Get your uh, iPhone out, your device out. And uh, put in November 5th through 8th, where we will be in Chicago. So a very easy place to get to for most people. Very excited to see everyone there. We'll again have a student program. So just save that date. More information will be out soon. Check our social feeds for more info. Absolutely. And as always, thanks everyone for listening. We're excited to be kicking off another great season of The Mentor's Voice. Be sure to check out our website, www.thementorsvoice.com, where you can connect with us, connect with our social media and find out what else is happening in the world of the mentor's voice and leading age. Also remember, your voice can make a difference.